I'd like you to have a Bible with you, or at least if you haven't got your Bible, I'd like you to have a pen and a tiny piece of paper, because I'm going to ask you to write down six words. That's all, just six words. You may remember them. You may remember them. So let's, let's see. I was thinking some time back about this particular Sunday. Should I preach a Christmas sermon, or is Christmas over, and should I talk about something else? And I made the decision to talk about something else, because I'm not sure when I might get an opportunity to do it. And it has to do with one of the most popular, one of the most often asked questions, certainly a question that is asked of me on many occasions. And that is, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know God's will for my life? Whom I should marry? Should we move house or shouldn't we move house? What car should we buy? Where should we go on holiday? What job should I take? All of these important questions. How do we know what God wants for us? And I'm going to share with you this morning that you can know those things with a certainty. And uh, that's why I'd like you to make, make a couple of notes as we go along. Let me say, first of all, unequivocally, that God's will for you and for me is not hidden. It's not lost, that you somehow have to search for it and find it. God doesn't dangle his will mysteriously and vaguely in front of you and send you on a search for it. And he stands by saying, oh, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. Knowing God's will is not like having some celestial lottery ticket that never comes to anything. God's will is not about a, a set of divine coincidences that come together and we say, oh, then that must be God's will for my life. I hope to prove to you this morning that God's will is clearly known to you and to me and to any other believer. And the key is not in trying to know God's will, but it's about obeying God's will. We're going to look at many, many Bible texts this morning, so have your Bibles ready. And the first text we're going to look at is in Psalm 40 and verse 8, where the psalmist says this, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. David is not concerned with finding God's will. He's more concerned with doing God's will, not even understanding God's will, but simply doing his will. Jesus himself says, I have come to do the will of the Father. And he taught us to pray. And what ought, ought we to pray? That thy will be done. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. He's speaking of, an, of one of his helpers by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, he says, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand and that you may stand fully assured in all of the will of God. This is the very essence of the Christian life, that we do the will of God. The longest chapter in the Bible is, is Psalm 119, 176 verses. And 175 of those verses are all about a heart longing to do the will of God. So if God wants us and expects us to do his will, why would he hide it from us? The answer is that God has not hidden his will from us at all, and he expects us to do it. And he holds us responsible for doing it. And he's placed his will in the most obvious place, if you like, in the Bible, his revealed word. Everything you need and I need to know about God's will for my life is right here in this book. It's 
recorded for us to see. We don't need to perform any tricks. We don't need to lay out any fleeces. We don't need to make bargains with God if he will reveal his will to us. We don't need to expect visions and dreams or special feelings. None of these. All right, then, Rob, get on with it. What is God's will for my life? Well, I'm going to mention six words to you very, very briefly. We're going to go through them quite quickly. And this is the will of God for your life. Number one, it is God's will that you be saved. It is God's will that you be saved. First Timothy chapter two, verse three and four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved, all men and women, of course, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus says to some of his followers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. The world, John says, is passing away, also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. God, God's will for our lives is that we be saved. And if we're not saved, if we're not a child of God, if we're not committed our life to him as our Lord and Savior, we cannot ever know the will of God. He's no obligation to tell us anything, and we have no right to ask him anything. You see, the non-Christian prays in vain. The only prayer I believe that the non-Christian may pray and will be answered is that prayer of faith and repentance and asking God to come into their lives. So first, so you say to me, well, then I want to know God's will. God says to you, are you saved? Are you saved? And I ask you that question unapologetically. Are you saved this morning? And if you're not and you know you're not, why put it off for another day? another week, another month, another year. And we come back and we ask the same question again. God's will is that you be saved. Secondly, it's God's will that you be spirit-filled. Here's the second word, spirit-filled. Ephesians chapter 5. We've been studying Ephesians with the help of our uh, brothers from uh, Ashford. Ephesians 5, 17. So do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the filling of the Spirit. And this is God's will, that we've filled with the Spirit. A couple of things. When we are born again, when you, the moment that we are justified, we are born again, the Spirit of God, all of the Spirit of, the God, of God, comes and takes up residence in our lives. That's what happens. God indwells our lives. He baptizes us into the body of Christ and gives us his fullness at the moment of salvation. And yet here in Ephesians, Paul is saying it's almost like a command, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how can that be? It sounds a bit contradictory. But what it means is that if you read back a chapter in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we can actually grieve. That's the word that is used. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, although the Holy Spirit fills our lives, we can take back control from him and insert our own will. And at this point, we need to return to the Holy Spirit in repentance and ask his fullness in our lives. 
This is the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not some second experience that some talk about that's accompanied by certain signs and visions and all sorts of things. The Holy Spirit's filling us is not so much like a, you think of a vessel, a glass, and then you fill it up. It's not really what the word means. It's more like you think of a, a, a sailing boat with a sail and the wind fills the sail. In other words, it enables the boat to be controlled. It gives it impetus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us bits of himself. The Holy Spirit gives us all of himself. He doesn't deal in fractions. We're to be spirit-filled. In many ways, it's, it's about us giving more of ourselves to him rather than him giving more of himself to, himself to, than to us. When we are filled with the spirit of God, it means that we have surrendered all that we have and are to him and enable him to take full control of our lives. So you say to me, Rob, I'm waiting for this. How do I find God's will for my life? I want to know the answer to the question. What job should I take? What woman should I marry? What man should I marry? I'm getting there. I want to know God's will. God says, are you saved? Secondly, are you spirit filled? Thirdly, it is God's will that you be sanctified. There's the third word, saved, spirit filled, sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter four verses three and four, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. It is God's will that we be sanctified. Now to be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be different. We often speak about the three tenses of salvation. So we can say quite rightly, we have been saved. That was a time in the past, the new birth, the regeneration. We can also say we are being saved. Day by day, we are growing more and more in, our, in the likeness of him. That's our sanctification. And we can also be, say we shall be saved. And that's the final part of our salvation when we meet Christ and, and, and we are made like him, our glorification. But we're to be sanctified and abstain from sexual immorality and so on. Sanctification means separation, removing ourselves from those things that characterize the life lived by non-believers. That's what sanctification is, to be distinctly different in the way we run our lives. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says this, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is it possible that one of the reasons we're not discovering God's will for our life is that we're too in love with the world? Is it possible that our loves are split between the world and God? And God will not accept split love. I was listening to Dr. Tony Evans, the great American preacher, on a, a YouTube video the other day, and he told the story of a young couple who had just been married, and they're traveling off on their honeymoon on a dark night and a, a terrible road, and it's raining and it's pouring and it's miserable, and the, almost the inevitable happens. They're involved in this terrible accident. The car flips over and it ends up in a ditch on the side of the road. The other, the other vehicle that was involved in the accident has sped off. 
The young fellow gets up and he manages to get out of the car and he sees his young bride in the car next to him and she's terribly, terribly wounded and she's unconscious. He manages to get her out of the car and in the rain, in the dark, in the cold, he lifts her up and he begins to walk down the road not knowing what to expect. And far in the distance, he sees a sign and it's Dr. Jones, medical practitioner on the sign. And so he trudges up the hill to this, to this house and he knocks on the door. And an elderly gentleman comes to the door and says, yes, can I help you? And he says, fix my wife. She's had this terrible accident, fix her. And the old doctor looks at him and says, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. I've retired from that. I can't do it, I can't, I can't help her. And the young man turns to the doctor and says, well, you've got two choices here. You either save my wife or you take down that sign. You save my wife or you take down that sign. And so it is with us. It's very easy to wear the sign, but we can't quit. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep growing. We've got to keep being the kind of people that God wants to be. Otherwise we take down the sign. Let's not pretend. So it's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will that we be spirit filled. It's God's will that be sanctified. Number four, it's God's will that we be submissive. There's the fourth word. The key thought behind submission is the concept of humility. And we saw this in our study of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, inheriting the earth would surely be all we could ever want for from the will of, the God, of God. What more could we want than inheriting the earth? But how meek and how submissive are we? And, and who, who should we be submissive to? Well, James starts it off by saying in James chapter four, verse seven, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee. So our, our submission should first of all before be, be to God. We should humble ourselves before God. We should realize who he is and who we are in the great gulf that is between us and humble ourselves. But as we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, chapter five and, and chapter six, there's a whole lot of ways in which we ought to be submissive. Uh, in Ephesians 5.1, uh, Paul writes, be imitators of God as, as beloved children. Then he speaks to, to wives and their submission to husbands, but he's not letting husbands off the hook. He says your, your life towards your wives ought to be loving submission as well. It ought to be humble. He talks to children about their parents and said, submit to your parents. But he's not saying to parents, you're off the hook. We ought to have humility in the upbringing of our children. He talks then to employees and bosses and says to bosses, he says to employees, you know, be submissive to your employers, your bosses. And, and we have to be. But that doesn't mean that bosses oughtn't to be humble as well. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, speaking of church leaders, the writer to Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. There's that word again, submissive. We ought to be submissive to leadership in the church, but not only in the church. We ought to be submissive to leadership as we find it in the world. First Peter chapter 2 verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to king or to one in authority. To do God's will is to be submissive to God and to be humble and submissive to people in our lives. That's God's will 
That's how we ought to live. So you say, Rob, I'm getting tired of all this now. I've asked you, how do I know God's will for my life? In 2021, I've got to make this big decision or that big decision. You're not helping here. I really want to know God's reply at the moment, and bear with me, is are you saved? Are you spirit-filled? And are you being sanctified? And are you being submissive and humble towards God and all who cross your path? Obey God in these ways, and his will becomes clearer. Number five. This one may knock you for a bit, but it's, it's there in the scriptures, clear as anything. Fifthly, it is God's will that you suffer. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It is God's will that we suffer. You say, but I keep hearing this, you know, and I'm not suffering. This is England, for goodness sake. We don't suffer in England. We're not in China. We're not in Saudi Arabia. We don't suffer here. Are you sure? Let me say one or two things here briefly. Are you sure Christians are not being persecuted in England? Ask those folk who've lost their jobs then because they wanted to wear a cross around their neck and their supervisors told them that was not on, they couldn't do that. Ask those people who've lost their businesses because they stood up for their values and they refused to offer a certain service to a gay couple or whatever the case might be. Ask the street preacher who's carried away and put into a police van because he preached that the only way to get to heaven is by Christ. And when he's asked from the audience, does that apply to Muslims as well? He says, yes, and he's taken away because of hate speech. There is persecution, and it's coming more and more and more. And if you're not suffering, then the question is, and I ask myself this question, you must always remember that those of us who preach always look at ourselves. We always do. For As we point our finger, all the other fingers are pointing back at us. So when I ask the question, are we perhaps not suffering because we're not telling the truth? Think of a, a really, really, really good close friend, or maybe even a family member, but make it a friend. And the reason that friendship is so precious to you and you enjoy it so much is because it brings all sorts of things to you. But you know there's one way in which that friendship could be destroyed. What is it? If you tell that person the truth about Christianity, if you say to that good non-Christian friend, that good friend of yours who's not a believer, they don't, they don't enjoy the things of Christ, but you enjoy their friendship. If one day you were to say to them, look, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. You need to come to Christ because if you don't, then I'm afraid there's no good news at all. If you did that, what would happen to that friendship? The chances are that friendship would break. And then you would suffer. You would suffer the, 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 the agony of having friendships break apart because you speak the truth. It's sad. That's why Jesus said, I think, only those who hate their mother, brother, sisters, and so on can truly follow me. He wasn't saying we need to hate anybody. 
He's saying, though, that our love for God, our love for the truth must be so overwhelming that every other emotion must almost feel like hate in comparison. It is God's will that we suffer. And finally, it is God's will that we say thank you. It is God's will that we say thank you. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Listen to this. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. My secular job, which I don't do that much of anymore, but was traveling around the world teaching men and women about leadership. I've sat in boardrooms all over the place. I've sat in university classrooms all over the place, teaching people about leadership. And one of the things we teach about leadership is you get far more out of people if you praise them than if you constantly criticize them. Show them appreciation. Find ways to show them that you really admire and appreciate what they've done. Praise is so important in the human run of relationships. God says, this is God's will for you, that you everything give thanks, that you rejoice. What's our life like at the moment? Are we living thankful lives? Boy, we hear a lot of complaining at the moment, don't we? And I've done it myself. Boy, have I done it. My wife will tell you that. You know, I don't like this being locked up more than the next guy. I'd love to have seen my kids this, this um, Christmas didn't happen. But that's not what our lives are supposed to be like, constant whinging and complaining. They're meant to be lies of thankfulness because of what he has done. So you say to me, well, Rob, that's all very well, but you still haven't told me how I know God's will for my life. Well, I thought I had, but you say I haven't. What car should I buy? I'm thinking of buying a car. What car should I buy? Or what holiday destination should we go to when eventually we can go and have a holiday? And I'm thinking of changing my job. How do I know for sure I should change my job? And I'm dating this young lady or this young man. How do I know for sure that she's or he's the person for me? I want you to listen very carefully. If you're doing God's will as it has been revealed, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you're sinless by any means, but you know what God's will is. And I've tried to explain it to you. If you're living in God's will, as we've been describing, in the power of his spirit, then listen to this. Do what you want. You heard me right. Do what you want. You say, well, you're going to find it hard to find the scripture for that. Well, I'm not really. If you know that you are out of the will of God in any one of those six areas that I have have mentioned, then you need to go backwards and get into the will of God. And when you're living in the will of God, confessing your shortcomings, living for him as you know you ought, how do you know God's will? Do whatever you want. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Did you get that? Delight yourself in the Lord. That's the first part, obeying God's will as you know it. Because then he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's the key. When we are saved and being sanctified, spirit-filled and submissive, suffering and saying thanks, 
God plants his desires in our hearts. And whatever we want is his will. So here's the question, who's controlling your wants? Remember Matthew, there was one verse in the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, we never got to it, in chapter 7, verse 7 of Matthew. And it's this verse that's, that says this, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open. If you have been frustrated by that verse, because you say, well, it doesn't really work like that. There's lots of things I've asked for that I haven't got. Can it really be true? Well, why would it be in the scriptures if it's not true? Of course it's true, but it's only true if you go back to chapter 5 and you begin to live according to God's revealed will. And what is God's revealed will? It's in the Beatitudes. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. Be meek and gentle. Hunger for righteousness. Be merciful. Be a peacemaker. Be persecuted. When you live the Beatitudes, ask and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. That's the promise. And there's one more scripture which I can share with you. And it's John chapter 15 and verse 7, where Jesus is speaking. This is the, the passage about the vine and the branches, you'll remember. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You see, there it is again. What a promise. Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. But the condition is you abide in me and my words abide in you. When we are obedient to God's revealed will for us, we discover his future for us by doing what we want. I just share with, with you in closing, I was 22 years of age. It was around about uh, January 1973, and I was due to graduate from Bible College in that May or early June. And at that stage in time, I still had no real idea of what exactly I wanted to do when I finished Bible College after four years of study. And I had a mentor who shared with me what I've shared with you this morning. He shared exactly what I've shared with you he shared with me that, that, that back in January. Because there were three things. The one was that I was offered ministry opportunities to stay in the United States, and I would have been able to do that. I'd been there long enough that they were off offering that I could change my visa to a, a, a green card and stay in the States and minister there. I'd had calls from an organization called Youth for Christ back in South Africa in Cape Town, for a regional directorship of, of Youth for Christ in a certain part of, of the Cape province. And then, this was, this was kind of a side one, I was playing football at a fairly good level and I'd received an offer to play for what was, and you, I'll leave you to guess the team, but it was one of the top teams in Europe in 1972-73. It was an English team and it was managed by a young Bobby Robson. You can go figure out what team that was. It wasn't Manchester United or any that you'll guess but it was a top English football team. So I had this offer to go and have a trial with them. And I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. And this mentor of mine said, go back. You're saved, Rob, you know that. Are you spirit filled? Are you living in the spirit? Are, is your life God's? Is he sanctifying you? Are you growing in him? It's not that you're becoming perfect or anything like that. 
but you really want to be separated unto him? Are you, are you submissive in the relationships to God and the people around you? Or are you trying to push your weight around? Are you prepared to suffer? Are you prepared to be rejected? And do you live a life of thanks? And I went back and I thought about that week after week after week. And I tried as best I could with God's spirit in my life to put myself in the middle of God's will. And then he said to me, Rob, what, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go back to South Africa and work for Youth for Christ. He says, then that's God's will for your life. Do what you want. This is powerful. This is very powerful. And I, I, I pray that for those of you who are looking for God's will, you, it's not hidden. It's not, it's, not, it's not hidden away somewhere. He's not trying to keep anything from you. He just says to you, live the way I've asked you to live in the power of the spirit. And when you're living like that, then do what you want. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your word and the promises of your word, the wonderful, wonderful promises of your word. Maybe we be those people this, this year, Lord, this coming year, who seek to obey you in everything we do, who seek to want to be the people of God in every way, living lives that are sanctified and submissive, living lives that are full of praise and help us then to know your will and to do your will. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.